I started my career in politics in the late 90s. I worked for a Republican U.S. Senator, although I was never much of a partisan. Back then, you could be fiscally conservative and socially liberal without being stuck in no man's land. We collaborated a lot across the aisle. I worked on as many projects and drank as many beers with Democrats as I ever did with Republicans. Times were different, to say the least. Our elected leaders used to set the tone of political discourse. Today, politicians take cues from their tribe, gleaning their talking points from whatever's trending on social media that day. And because legislation can't be written in 140 characters, there's a huge disconnect between the sound bites voters want to hear and the substantive policies the country actually needs. That disconnect is particularly pervasive in technology policy, or the extreme lack thereof. The tech industry moves so fast and the nuances are so complex, Congress can't keep up. Both sides lament big tech, but for different and conflicting reasons. Everyone knows we need to protect consumer privacy, but all the money's on the other side of the issue, and it's a lot of money. My guest today is Congressman Mike Doyle, who after 28 years serving in the House of Representatives, is retiring after this term. Congressman Doyle started his career as a Republican before becoming one of the famed Blue Dog Democrats. He holds a coveted seat on the House Energy and Commerce Committee and chairs the Subcommittee on Communications and Technology, where the most important debates about tech policy are happening. The congressman talked about the changes he's seen over almost three decades in Washington, how the new breed of politicians care more about being social media stars than passing laws, and why tech remains largely unregulated. He did provide some faint glimmers of hope, while also riffing on his favorite barbecue side dish and the best decade ever for music. So give a listen to the esteemed public servant, Congressman Mike Doyle, and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Congressman Doyle, how are you? John, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining me today. What's the best thing you've cooked recently? You know, just last Friday, I made my mother's homemade manicotti recipe. And I make everything from scratch, the crepes, the filling, the sauce. I had a good friend over I hadn't seen for a while who craves Southern Italian food. And I usually only make that recipe for Christmas. I, that's our Christmas dinner. So this is the first time I've ever made it and it wasn't Christmas, but it was just last Friday. And uh, I still think I have some leftovers in my fridge. Well, I know where you live. So maybe that's why. <laughs> I think it was a holiday in and around one where you texted me once mentioning something you were cooking and mass scale. It might've been manicottis or meatballs or something. It's not like on Christmas, were... I make 120 manicottis. We have 30 people over to the house and I make 60 meatballs, 60 pieces of hot sauce each. <laughs> and, and it takes me like three days to do it. But, uh, wow. Quite impressive. Christmas, so. You can't buy something like that. Well, I'm jealous. I'm jealous you have that skill because I do not. I try to. I, I just said, you know, when you have Irish and Italian parents, uh, my father obviously was the Irish one, uh, but my mother, her maiden name was Fusco, but she was a wonderful cook, but she was very strict. And I think she broke every kitchen utensil we had in the house on me and my brother. And I just was thinking Italian women are kind of crazy. And so I decided I'd learn how to cook everything that she made that I loved. And I married a Swedish woman. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm jealous. I wish I had it. And unfortunately, I'm such a mutt. I have like such a boring family lineage. I don't even have anything like that to hang my hat on. So, so good for you. All right. So you're on the one yard line here. You've Elected in 1994 in my hometown of Pittsburgh, 28 years, right? Is that the number? That's it. Um, why now? I think a lot of it was personal. You know, Susan and I got married very young. Uh, we had our kids very young. So we have uh, four grown children from 46 years old down to 33. They're all on their own. Uh, they're all doing well. And it's just Susan and I. And four days a week, I'm down here and she's in Pittsburgh. And we've, you know, talked about that next chapter in our lives while we're still healthy and uh, can do some more things. And I thought the redistricting would be a good jumping off point. Pennsylvania's loop lost the seat. And it's funny, I, I'm in the 18th congressional district. Well, there's, there's only going to be 17. So I had fun with the press when I said before I made my official announcement that I was not going to seek re-election in the 18th district anymore. And they... They said, you're making the announcement. And I said, no, there's not going to be an 18th district. But anyways, I thought, you know, this is a good jumping off point. The district's expanded, obviously. Pennsylvania's 
population actually grew, but not enough to keep the seat. So the districts are now about 750,000 people. And my district is pushed into parts of Westmoreland County now. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for a new member of Congress to start in a new district fresh. So that's basically why I did it. Well, so you get to be the last, maybe not ever, but for a long time, the last 18th congressional district congressman. That's a cool claim to fame. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to go into public service? You know, I didn't think of it that way. When I was in college at Penn State, I was went up there in 1971 and the Vietnam War was going on and the 72 presidential elections were coming up and Nixon was running against George McGovern. And my draft number was 39. You know, this is back when they had the draft. It's the only lottery I ever won. Well, I I guess you don't want to look at it that way. But and I remember they said they were probably going to draft up to like 120. So, you know, you're 39 years old. We had our physical and uh, McGovern was going to end the war. Well, that was good enough platform for me to become a, a McGovern volunteer. So my first foray into politics was uh, volunteering for George McGovern in the 72 elections. And I thought he was doing really well because on the college campus, everybody was formed. This is how naive I was at the time. I went home one weekend and had dinner with my parents and my dad, who was kind of a you know, traditional redneck steel worker. But a Democrat, he always said, you know, Democrats are for working people. That's why we're Democrats. So I figured he'd be happy that I was supporting George McGovern. This is back, John, when I, I think, had long hair down to the middle of my back and a beard. My dad wasn't real thrilled with me. But we're sitting at the dinner table and I said, hey, dad, finally doing something you're going to agree with. And he says, what could that be? And <laughs> I said, I'm. I'm volunteering for this guy, George McGovern, you know, and you told us you know, to be for the Democrats. And he looked at me. I can't actually on a podcast say exactly what he said back to me, but he's like McGovern. He's an effing communist. I'm voting for Nixon. <laughs> so that was my first experience in the politics. And of course, McGovern lost 49 states. And when I came home, I thought I want to be involved. So I actually tried to run for the borough council in Swissville. I grew up in Swissville. And I went to the Democratic chairman and asked him if I could run for council. I was 21 years old. And he called me a wet behind the ear punk and, and said, you know, what makes you think you can waltz out of college and just, you know, run for council? It was one of those guys. And I basically said, well, look, I studied in civics class. I don't need your permission to run. I was just asking as a courtesy, <laughs> you know, and I said some other things to him that you can't say on a podcast. But they wouldn't let me run on the ticket. So I ran as a Republican. A lot of people don't know that my first elective office was as a Republican councilman in, in Swissville. And I asked my dad if he'd vote for me. And he laughed and he said he'd think about it. But I actually went door to door and knocked on a bunch of doors. And I actually won election to the borough council. So that was my first four-way into politics and ended up meeting another councilman from Penn Hills who decided to go on a suicide mission and run for the state senate in a heavily Democratic seat. He was a Republican who used to be a Democrat, too, by the name of Frank Bacora. He won. And Christmas Eve, he called me on the phone and asked me to quit my job and come work for him. And I figured it was a four-year deal because, you know, his election was a fluke in my opinion. But he got reelected three more times after that. And uh, I served 16 years with him as his chief of staff. So that's how I sort of got involved. And he ran for Congress against Rick Santorum. You may know who that was, John. Heard of the guy. Yeah. And 92 and Rick beat him. And then uh, in 94, Rick ran for the Senate. And I called Frank up and said, you're going to do this again. And he said, no, I'm going to retire. Frank was about 20 some years older than I was. He's deceased now. He said, you should do it. And I'm like me. He says, yeah, you. He said, you know, as many people as I do, you should do it. My wife, Susan, was immediately against it. And we had a little insurance agency at the time. And she said, you know, just concentrate on the business and get out of this political stuff. And then I think she felt bad that she, you know, nixed it right away. And she goes, if you want to do it, go ahead, but don't touch it. You're not allowed to spend any of our money. And when you lose, she said, you know, let's get out of politics. And But I do think she voted for it. <laughs> we knocked a lot of doors. I was in a seven-way race, not endorsed by the party, obviously. They didn't see me as a true Democrat because of my work with Frank. I ran on the Democratic ticket, obviously. And I won that primary, and then I've won 
13 more elections after that. So that's kind of how it happened. Not by design. There was no grand plan to do it. It just sort of fell into my lap, an opportunity. And I thought there was no downside to trying to run. I thought if I made a good showing, it would be good for my insurance business. But uh, what I found out when I got to Congress was you're not allowed to have an insurance business when you're in Congress. <laughs> Actually, from a financial standpoint, it wasn't a smart thing I did. But it's been a real privilege to serve your hometown and the Congress. And, and I have enjoyed it. It has its ups and downs, but I'm glad I did it. And I'm going to leave this place with lots of good memories and being able to get a lot done for my hometown, which has been a source of pleasure for me. Your head should certainly be held high. And having watched what you've been able to do for our region, it's you should be incredibly proud. I know we're we're grateful as citizens here. Would Susan have protested harder if she knew she was making a 28-year commitment? <laughs> she didn't nix that immediately. Yeah. You know, the last couple of terms, she kept saying, well, when does this end? Like, how long is this going to be? Because I always told her, I said, Susan, I'm not going to be one of these people that are in Congress in their 70s and 80s. You know, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, you know, August was my 69th birthday, and she was pointing that out to me that she recalled me making that statement and that if I actually was telling her the truth, then, you know, this term I was in would be my last one. And uh, I told her I was going to finally retire. She didn't believe me. She said, when you hold a press conference and say that publicly, she said, I'll, I'll believe it. But I did it in October of last year. I said, I feel like I'm on a bicycle now. I don't have to pedal hard anymore, but, you know, I'm still on the cycle and I'm sort of coasting right now. But, uh, uh, we're coming down the home stretch. There's really only two more weeks of session here in September. We're off the whole month of October and, and November to after the elections. And then we'll come back for a lame duck session. that will be a, a week or two and that'll be it. Wow. Has to be a little surreal, I bet. Yeah. So you, you said something, touched on some historical points there that I kind of want to bring to current a little bit. So when you and I first met, I worked for a Republican whose seat you filled when he moved from the Congress to the Senate. We not only worked together on things with your team back then, but you and I have become friends over those many years. You were a Republican at the time when it was served a purpose for you to run at that time. You, you became a Democrat. You've always been, I would say, even certainly by today's standards, very moderate as a Democrat. But there was so much collaboration in those days when it was Arlen Specter and Rick Santorum and yourself and um, John Murtha. And I'm not sure how much any of us ever thought about what, you know, whether there was an elephant or a donkey on someone's desk at that point of time. Can that happen anymore? I think it happens probably more than people realize. But um, uh, Well, that's good. Share that because I think from, I've been removed from politics for 20 years, at least yeah. as, as a trade. And the yeah, perception I, is certainly different. I mean, there are, there are parts of that party that I don't recognize anymore. I basically, um, a registered Democrat, I became a Republican because the chairman called me a wet behind your punk. So lesson for all Democratic chairmen, don't call these young kids that want to run for office punks. And then the guy I worked for was a Republican. So out of respect for him, uh, I certainly kept my registration that way. But I think growing up as a blue collar kid in Swissville, your dad's a mill worker, kind of a natural affinity for you know, the Democratic Party and, and the labor movement. But I would say in Congress, I work on the Energy and Commerce Committee, probably one of the most bipartisan committees in Congress. And I really think about 80% of the members down here do work on projects together. Now, both sides have that, that 10%. And, you know, we're in the age of social media. I came down to Congress to be a legislator, to pass laws and adopt policies that would help Pittsburgh and help the country. I didn't come down here to be a social media star and see how many followers I could have. And I think what you see today on both sides is this phenomenon where people are, are down here, you know, to see what kind of following it. And then they raise obscene amounts of money because they have have these followers, but they don't do much legislating. And you know how everybody likes to watch a car wreck, you know, when you drive on a road and there's a car wreck, it's just some perverse fascination that you want to see the car wreck and what keeps people's, you know, eyes on these platforms are the car wreck or the people that say the most outrageous things. And I think for those of us that pay attention to that, and thank God most Americans, well, more than I'd like, yet, you know, tend to see that on both sides. And people also tend to watch what 
reaffirms what they already believe. So they're sort of getting the, the one side of it, whether it's hard right or hard left. And it's designed to keep your eyeballs there, right? So it's usually something that makes you angry or something salacious or something crazy. And that's an unfortunate business model that has led to a lot of bad things, in my opinion, that we have to deal with in terms of uh, content and privacy. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that later, given my committee position. But like I said, our committee has passed, I would say, 80% of what we send out of energy and commerce is bipartisan legislation, and we'll get it passed. But it's not headline-making. Kind of boring. Everyone's agreeing. That doesn't keep eyeballs on the platform. So I think sometimes people see this and it's, but, you know, there's a lot of things out there that concern me, but I would tell people it's not as bad as they think. Well, that's wonderful to hear because, yeah, we like to watch car wrecks maybe, but when your country's in the car, you hear a little bit about collateral damage, you know? (laughs) Amen. Yeah. And I think your point about social media and the attention grabbing of people, that has become the currency. Is it's And certainly the more controversial the thing, the more even absurd the thing that you say. And you made the interesting point. We write about this a lot and study this a lot in our company, which is that sort of notion today of people don't want to learn new things. They want to seek out information that they already agree with that makes them feel better. And that puts elected officials in a really tough spot because if they breach that sort of tribal loyalty that they supposedly have with those followers, those people will jump ship in a second, you know? I thought of fast, you know, such a fascinating case study was was Liz Cheney, who on every policy issue you could imagine is as conservative as they come. But man, she stepped toe out of line and see ya. And unfortunately, all that did was reinforce for all of those other people playing that game why they have to continue to play that game. And that's a, a tough thing to break. What would you tell someone, a young person who came to you today and said they wanted to get into public office? Well, first of all, I think it's important that young people get involved in politics. I, I really do. And, you know, there's all levels that young people can be involved. You know, for me, it started at the local level, you know, in my local community. And those politics are really tough, you know, because you're dealing with, uh, especially if you're in some of these communities with declining tax bases and in the Mon Valley, towns like Swissville, where I grew up and others, they're, they're asked to do a lot of things with not a lot of money. They don't get paid or they get paid like 50 bucks a month or something, or if you're a school board member and people are coming to the meetings and threatening you. And it's tough to get people to, to run for these offices. I talked to many people that I wanted to run, thought would be good people to run for my seat, and I couldn't get them to do it. So it's tough. You know, Pittsburgh's only had two congressmen in 50 years. Bill Coyne for 22 years and me for 28 You'd think that there'd be a big line of people saying, boy, this guy finally retired. (laughs) I can run for Congress. You can't believe how many people turned me down when I called them on the phone and said, I really think you'd be good at this and I'm willing to support you if you're running. And they said, no, thanks. So I think, you know, I think it's still a noble calling. And I think it's important for the country that good people step up and run. But it's not a business for the thin skinned in this day and age, given all the ways that people communicate now. And when you're able to communicate anonymously, you know, back in the old days, you know, if you're looking somebody eye to eye, you wouldn't dare say the things that people say to people on the internet. And I just think that's coarsened, you know, the whole fabric and this empowerment that, you know, some of the people questioning our institutions and just, you know, outright, you know, you can't be threatening people at school board meetings because they think there's a book in the library they don't like. But, you know, they get ginned up to get angry about these things. And and then these people that basically are volunteer school board members don't get paid, you know, are dealing with like a, a lot of threatening behavior these days. And so how do you get good people to run for these seats? And that's a problem. But I would tell young people that it's important that they're part of the process, because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And if young people want to have a voice in their future, they have to be involved. So that's what I would tell them that, and that involvement can take many different shapes. It doesn't, you know, necessarily have to be elective office, but it can. And there's many, you know, I worked in local government and state government before I ever went to federal government, which has been, I I think was helpful for me to get the perspective of how that works. So I guess that's what I would tell them. It's a recurring theme that seems to come up with guests I have here. It's just a, a general optimism for this young generation. So my teenage daughters, 
my 18 year old was volunteering to work at polls when she was 16 before she was even old enough to vote. I would argue it's even been higher calling than it was before because of the challenges and the thick skinnedness required. It's a harder decision to make. And it is unfortunate though, if, if our best and brightest are deterred from it for any reason. I used to back when we, we used to work or I focused more on my work in Washington. I never worked on the on Capitol Hill, but I used to always say that one of the things I thought was a fundamental problem with more on the staff side was that the staff was actually underpaid. And that if you were living in DC and you were 26 years old, making, you know, an LA staff, legislative assistant staff salary, and your buddy that you're sharing, you know, an apartment with four people with takes a job with a lobbying firm and start all of a sudden makes 10 times the amount of money overnight. It's hard to stay in that job when you're at that age. And especially as the cost of living in DC went up and up and up and up. And always just, it felt to me like if you said to the average person, yes, congressional staffers are underpaid, you know, they'd want to stare daggers through you, but it's, it was true. I mean, we have to find ways and it shouldn't be just about money, obviously. In fact, not even, but it's just one sort of ingredient, I think and how we get the best and brightest and smartest people in this country to go into public service, because that's not what's happening right now. When you see the young people that I've seen over the 28 years that, you know, the entry level job here, you know, you come in and you're working up in the front office and maybe you're giving people tours and you're opening the mail and you have talents well above that, but it's so competitive. You just want to get your foot in the door and people see your talent and then you move into the back office and and you go from there. But a lot of these kids that I mean, they're kids when they are making somewhere between twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a year in Washington, D.C., that's poverty wage. That pays for your parking. Yeah. <laughs> try to find a place to live. And it's like you say, you have six people living together to afford. Now, we just recently put minimum pay levels for staff into D.C. And I believe I pay way more than with them. Most people, but I believe it's 40,000 is the least amount of money you can pay. And we just raised the top. It used to be our chiefs of staff couldn't make more money than we make. That just got bad because uh, we haven't had a call in 14 years. So our salaries have been frozen for 14 years. I'm not crying about that, by the way. But what I'm saying is my chief of staff was frozen basically for 14 years because of this rule saying he couldn't make more than. So he made like $100 less than me, but he made $100 less than me for 14 years and never got a raise because I didn't have the ability. Well, they finally un- uncapped that. And now most, you know, my chief of staff has been with me 28 years. Now he makes more than I do. And rightfully so. <laughs> I felt bad all those years that I could give COLAs to staff at a lower pay scale. So I could never do anything for him. And they work hard down here. People don't understand what it's like to be a staffer in, in Washington, D.C. This place can wear you down. And the staff, if you did, well, you know, because you were one. I was a staffer, you know, in the state Senate all those years. I understand what that's like. So I have tremendous respect for them. And I couldn't be near as effective as I've been able to be without them. And I think a lot of people don't realize the role they play. Or to your point, how hard they have to work and the hours they have to work. And yes, everybody should watch the West Wing if they haven't, just to get a small taste of what that's like. (laughs) Mike, is there a future for moderates in this country? I mean, we've got, you talked about sort of the 10% of the respective parties you don't recognize anymore. And and that's actually pretty strong, a pretty good, you know, assessment of the, like the ratios. And then you've got sort of that next band, which are pretty partisan, maybe unyielding in their partisanship. But the largest segment of the U.S. consumer and voting population is actually in the middle, but they're forced to pick one binary side of the aisle or or the other, and it's kind of no man's land for moderates. And and yeah, I don't know if it's another party a solution or what, but is there hope of getting back to some sort of more moderate discourse here? Well, I would say that moderates win general elections. The problem is they can't win primaries. Right. So Exactly. You know, if the choice the two party gives you is is a hard left person and a hard right person. Yeah, but I mean, I would say that, I mean, look at Pennsylvania. One party has chosen a candidate for governor that is unelectable in a general election, given what he believes and what his positions are. So they basically conceded that seat. And this isn't happening just in Pennsylvania. All throughout the country, you're seeing in primaries, the most extreme candidates getting picked. 
and then they can't survive the general elections. So I think the problem is, what do we do about the primary system? You know, there's this talk, should we let independents vote? You know, and that would moderate the vote. Then, you know, there's some states like Alaska just did, they did that ranked choice voting. And that's how the Democrat, I mean, Don Young was the congressperson there for 50 years as a Republican. And because there were two Republicans in the race and one was more extreme, a lot of the people were picking the Democrat as their second choice after they voted for the less extreme Republican. And the Democrat ended up winning the race. So I think, and I struggle with it because I, as a Democrat, I'm thinking, well, I don't want people who aren't registered in my party deciding who our candidates are. You know, we're Democrats for a reason or we're Republican for a reason. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I think, you know, the problem seems to be what the parties, what the base is doing in both parties, not so much as in the general. And I think in some swing states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania, you know, where it isn't hard red, hard blue kind of states, what you're seeing is even a state like Kansas, you know, that the moderates are winning the general elections when there's a, a choice between a moderate and somebody that holds a a hard position left or right. So I think there's still a space for them. And certainly when you see legislation passing in a bipartisan way, it's moderate members of both parties that are passing that legislation. You know, the rest are social media stars, but they don't pass any bills and they don't want to. They're too busy being social media stars. Well, as long as we can figure out how moderates can survive primaries, I think I haven't thought enough about the unintended consequences of ranked choice voting. It's intriguing to think about. I do worry about parties being able to cross over to vote in the other groups' primaries because you could easily game that as well. I'm going to go vote. I'm going to go vote for the person who I know is most likely to lose in the general. Absolutely. I feel like I've found myself more in the last five or six years voting against someone versus voting for someone, right? So Mm -hmm. there could be a sack of potatoes running against a particular individual, but I'll vote for the sack of potatoes because it's better than that. And we don't want the country to to default too far into that. Let's move over to your committee and subcommittee chairmanship because so much of our audience here is technology, media. You're on the House Energy and Commerce Committee and you chair the subcommittee on communications and technology, which is where so much of this, the conversations about privacy and and data and everything like this is happening. But before we get into some specific issues or or policies, federal government feels to me like it has struggled to understand and address the complexities of technology. It feels largely too dramatically unregulated compared to other industries of its size and scale. And sometimes, you know, sometimes not regulating things is a conscious choice because we believe in deregulation or unregulation. This feels a little bit more a function of not entirely understanding the industry incredibly well. It's moving, <laughs> it's changing so fast. Why is Washington struggling with the tech industry so much? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is complicated and it's rapidly evolving and it moves faster than public policy does. You know, this isn't like how do you make a car safer? How do you decarbonize the steel industry, which are sort of engineering challenges? What we're dealing with down here in Congress is how do you change the harmful aspects of a business without destroying the way it makes money? And it's the business model. And people enjoy this vehicle, these platforms. So you're taking something that's tremendously popular with people, and you want to basically fundamentally have to change how they make money. Because the way they make money is to keep eyeballs on the platform. And that tends to have the kind of content that concerns a lot of us. Now, you don't want to prohibit free speech. But one of the problems I have, and one of the things we've tried to do on the committee is take a look at Section 230, which is this liability shield that these platforms have that no one else does. Newspapers don't have it. Television doesn't have it. They're all held accountable for what they say. but On the platforms, it's like, well, you're not liable for what another person posts. You know, they have no liability for third-party posts. But here's where it gets, I think, into an area that needs reform. When you have an algorithm and you amplify, they call it an algorithmic amplification, something, content that is harmful in some way, 
and you're knowingly amplifying it. It seems to me that at that point, that liability shield should go down and someone should have access to the courtroom. Not to say that you're going to be found guilty. Uh, you still have to prove harm. But to let the platforms say, you know, if you're going to amplify this, you don't have that liability shield anymore. I mean, John, we've had, you know, conspiracy theories since the founding of the Republic. And most of them, you know, end up being these theories that float around in a, a local locality or something, never, never reach the masses. 20% of America, I just saw this polling data, know about QAnon and, and think there's something to it. We just saw a guy in Michigan shoot his wife and daughter over what he, something in QAnon, and, you know, instructed him to. Uh, and so the question is, how did something like that get to literally millions of people uh, when you think about 20% of the population of the United States? And that's because that algorithm amplified that and people that weren't even looking for it. See, I think if you want to go on Google and search something, you want to search that particular issue. That's fine, whatever it is. But what you don't want to happen is while you're searching bald eagles, that all this other stuff starts to pop up on your screen that has nothing to do with bald eagles, but something in that algorithm saying, well, if he's looking at bald eagles, we might be able to you know, get his eyeballs on this too. And then before you know it, a guy shows up in DC with an AR-15 in a pizza shop thinking he's liberating kids down in the basement because he went down that QAnon rabbit hole and he thought he was doing something patriotic, you know? And you think about the January 6th events and a lot of the people that and I can see them, right? I'm sitting in my office, which has a nice view of the Capitol, and I watched them charge up the steps there. And a lot of those people thinking they were saving their country in their minds. And you say to yourself, how did we get there? And that's how we got there, because this just became pervasive on the Internet. And so the question is, what do you do about that? Right. And every time we talk about, you know, taking that liability shield down, which is something no one else has, it meets tremendous resistance by the tech community. And it says we're stifling innovation. And the problem is, is that this business model, they have to have car wrecks, John, because people watch the car wrecks. And that's how they keep the eyeballs on the site. And then that's how they sell ads. And as long as that business model exists, and, you know, Republicans want to look at Section 230, and so do we, but for two totally different reasons. Republicans think we're trying to stifle conservative speech on the Internet. And look, I... I don't have any problem with anybody that has opinions on conservative or liberal on policy. That doesn't bother me at all. I don't like it when someone said the government's putting chips in the vaccines and they're going to control the, you know, control everybody's mind if you get the vaccine and we've got an epidemic. I don't like that being pervasive on the internet. And there should be some accountability for that. We just haven't figured out how you get the majority of House and Senate members to move on that. And I think you should understand how big the lobby is down here. Those companies are billionaires. I mean, the biggest concern for me, well, there's lots of concerns around privacy. We scream from the rooftops here all the time. And it's the personal data, it's the health data, there's the security. It's the way advertising happens, which by the way, is built on that same sort of car wreck concept that's happening in media and information as it's those algorithms have figured out how to identify somebody's individual vulnerabilities based on the data they have about that person, and they know what yep. to put in front of them. It, you use the bald eagle example. Okay, that's a fairly simple one. But there's these other things, these algorithms, which don't have morals and ethics. They're not supposed to. They're math problems. And they've figured out that a particular type of information, when put in front of a particular type of person, is more likely to move them. You mentioned money. And I know it's always such a kind of a throwaway line for a lot of people following money or whatever, but there is no money in privacy. On the contrary, all of the headwinds against privacy are financial ones because of the impact that has on the business model of those companies that you're talking mm -hmm. about. And it's hard to get consumers really fired up about that issue because we don't understand what's actually happening. If people really did understand the extent to which their privacy is threatened and the implications of that, this would be on the, a top three issue for most people. And it definitely is not. You said something at the beginning of that comment that these platforms are very popular and so is tobacco, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Tobacco was just as popular. And 
we need, this is what our government exists to do is to protect consumers from inequities and risks and dangers. And are these bills getting stuck because they're, it's just not perceived to be a good enough headline for those people who are trying to get the social media clicks. I know they're not the ones legislating or, you know, tech seems to be one of those industries that the Republicans and Democrats both seem to dislike tech, but they seem to dislike tech for different reasons. And those reasons seem to be at odds at one another. So what's clogging up the works here? How do we get the hairball out of the sink? Well, I think that's part of it. Like I said, though, both sides want to reform 250 for totally different reasons. And then, you know, someone gets thrown, you know, former president gets thrown off a Twitter site and he has his own site now and can basically say or do anything he wants on that site. And then there's the dark sites too that exist. And tobacco is bad for you. And we tell people that you can get cancer if you smoke it, but we don't, people still smoke cigarettes. And we try to warn people about how to safeguard their privacy. But I ask people all the time when the thing comes up, accept cookies, manage cookies, which button do you push? And they always tell me, I just hit the accept cookies because I just want to get into the thing I want to get into. I don't want to go through this whole rigmarole of, of And so I think a lot of it is an education process. I used to smoke two packs of Marlboros a day when I was in college and up till I was about 30 years old. And at a certain point, it occurred to me that that was not good for my health. <laughs> and I stopped smoking cigarettes and I haven't smoked a cigarette in the next 39 years. But an education process led me to that conclusion. I think Americans have so much to learn about safeguarding their privacy. And I just think that we're in this fast-paced world where they get online and they want to get to what they want to get to. And whatever button they have to push to get them there, they do it without thinking of the consequences. Every time I'm asked if I can, I always say no. I mean, you don't ever push that yes button. Because you have no idea unless you read the terms of service. You ever hit the terms of service? No, no. I mean, I couldn't. 20 even. pages of legal right. use that a Harvard law graduate couldn't tell you what it says. And that's why people just click and let them in. And that's why the bill has to be, you know, number one, it, it needs to just stop certain types of data sharing completely. You know, without express opt-in, you have my permission to do that. And you should have access to your data that you can go in there and restrict whatever you want to restrict. These are all things that are very popular with the public, but we can't seem to get them past the politics of it, you know, past the House and Senate. And as I said before, these are billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies we're talking about. Creeping up on trillion dollar companies. Yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah. Get to employ more than just one lobbyist. <laughs> right, exactly. They probably yes. have like one. That, that's the other months. thing people don't see as clearly from the outside in. Yeah, well, you know, because you work here. Yeah, so our thesis here is that when we survey consumers about privacy all the time and they say they care about it, but when they are asked to make even the smallest trade off whatsoever, they'll make the trade off. I'm just a very big believer that it only gets solved and the platforms are not going to self-regulate. They're going to do the bare minimum they need to do to look like they're trying. It's either going to have to be very substantial government policy and or the advertisers have to take more control because that's where those platforms dollars come from. The reason they're worth, maybe not Microsoft quite as much, but a lot of the other big tech players, their money comes from Procter and Gamble and McDonald's and Bank of America who spend the advertising dollars to power those engines and there we just had an episode on this topic a couple of weeks ago that if advertisers may have the shortest route to make change in these areas if they start withholding dollars from the platforms based on based on these behaviors maybe that's a naive thing because at the end the other problem there is those platforms are highly performant at serving ads right so so uh, yeah there's no easy answer Congressman, if you had your couple weeks removed from a minus a lame duck session after Thanksgiving, if you had a magic genie in a bottle on your desk right now and you had three wishes to make, <laughs> to change the things that you think most need to be changed, what would those three be? Or one or well, two? It's funny. We've been talking about a subject where the genie's out of the bottle and we can't figure out how to put it back in, but maybe I'll save that one for last. But a couple things, education. When you think about the future for the workforce and for young people and how some uh, fear technology because they think there's no place for them in the technology world. When you think about Pittsburgh, where you used to be able to make a good living using your back, 
But now in this diverse economy we're in in Pittsburgh, and we're talking about you know artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles and some of the other things that are just going to boom here. Education's an important piece. I would like to see, first of all, mandatory education free K through 14. And I think the best part of grades 13 and 14 for a lot of people is some sort of technical training that allows them to get their foot in the door. With these companies, they can make family sustaining wages with, and they have enough of a basic training to get the foot in the door and be trained from there. You know, John, I'm a little bit older than you, but my dad was a steel worker and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, right? And their dream was to have their kids go to college because they thought if their kids went to college, that they'd have a good life, right? So my two sisters and my brother and I all got a chance to go to college. And my two sisters have master's degrees. My brother's a PhD and I'm the least educated in the family. I got my bachelor's degree at Penn State. Well, then we get married, right? And we have kids. And we think, what kind of losers would we be if we didn't send our kids to college? So we got in this mindset in America where everybody's got to go to college. Well, hey, that's a good choice for a lot of students. For a lot of other students, an apprenticeship in the trades is a heck of a good choice. And I just see college kids today coming out of school with all this debt, with degrees that they can't get jobs with. If you're coming out of school with a bachelor's degree in psychology and you owe 40 grand, you're in trouble. And so how do we make sure that we're educating people and they don't fear these types of growth industries we're seeing, that they're not smart enough to do it? And the other thing is, why does the government have to make money loaning educational grants? You know how many people come into my office? I had a lady, she had a master's degree. She was a social worker. That's what she got her master's degree in. She was making $32,000 a year. She had been paying on her student loan faithfully for 10 years. And she only reduced a couple thousand dollars of the principal because her income was such that, you know, she had to make a minimum payment based on her income that all she was paying was interest and she wasn't reducing any principal. A lot of kids have these loans that you don't make payments while they're in school, but they accrue interest while they're still in school. And if they go to graduate school, you know, that continues. I would have a policy where, and of course, it has to be some income eligibility to it, but where people borrow money for their education and you got to pay that money back, but you pay the principal back. The government doesn't need to make the interest on it. Now, of course, we've turned a lot of this over to the private sector and the banks want to charge interest. I think it's in our national interest to have an educated workforce in an educated country. And I think it's a good investment. We invest in a lot of other things. I think we should invest in people's education, whether it's technical or college. And I think when they take a loan out, they should pay it back. But I don't think they should pay interest. I think the government, if you want to subsidize something, subsidize the interest. And we give colleges a lot of money, too. And I think part of that money ought to be used to keep tuitions, premiums down. I have four college graduates in my family, okay? Three of them are Penn Staters and one with the University of uh, Dayton, which is a private school. She's 33 years old now. So she's been out of school for over 10 years, right? And it was 40,000 a year back then. How many middle-class families today without remortgaging their houses, you know, can afford to pay $40,000 a year for a college education? Even Penn State, which is a state-supported school, when I went to Penn State, I think the tuition was like three grand. It wasn't a lot of money. Right now, my youngest son, but he's 40, so he's been out of school for 20 years. It was something like $20,000 or 20. And these kids come out with all this debt. They can't buy a house. They can't buy a car. And they can't get ahead because they can't get this debt paid off. And, you know, and this thing we did this year, I'm sure people appreciated getting $10,000 if they, you know, off their debt. But that's not a long-term solution. That was a one-shot deal that just sort of like a notch baby thing, you know, but, but I just think there's a better way to do that. So that's one thing I would do right off the bat. The other thing, because these are things my committee deals with too in healthcare, every country in the world gives their citizens of birth a basic set of healthcare benefits. And I think, you know, I'm not advocating to get rid of private insurance. I think private markets could do a lot to enhance the basic coverage and that employers, if they have traditionally in our country, use that as a benefit that attracts people to come work for their, their company. But the idea that we have people in this country, many people still to this time, that have no insurance, and then they go into the emergency rooms where they end up, you know, taxpayers are paying 10 times as much as they would if we could get them into a primary care doc. I would just like to see some sort of basic benefit that, you know, 
for all Americans. And this is done all over the world. We're the only country that doesn't do it. And our health outcomes aren't as good as other countries. So I, I would do that. And then the last thing is what we've been talking about. How do we get this genie back in the bottle that has been a force for so much good, but so much bad too, in terms of these platforms? They've caused movements that have liberated countries and they've caused the division in this country that's so hard right now that it's almost cultish kind of behavior. It's exactly cultish behavior. That's, yeah. That's, it's and, the textbook. And what the former president did, which was, I don't want to call it brilliant as a compliment, but he never came down on any of us who criticized him that were in the Democratic Party. He expected that. But boy, he didn't tolerate it in his own party. And the example that he made of not just people like Liz Cheney, but there are many other examples of people who didn't toe the line with him, sent a powerful message to that caucus that if you would like a primary and him to visit your district and say, this guy got to go, then all you got to do is, you know, not play along with the program. And I think that's, I have a lot of Republican friends in Congress. I'm not a overtly partisan person, it's just, I never have been. And they're good friends of mine. And we go out together, I know their families, and we talk, you know, at a personal level. And they go through, I'm not making excuses for them, but this hangs over their heads because I ask them privately, you know, why do you feel like you need to, you know, perpetuate some of this stuff? You you know, it isn't true, right? I mean, you know, he didn't win, right? (laughs) And they'll look at you and go, yeah, he didn't win. I'm like, well, you know, why can't you say that? They're in a tough spot. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. There's no empathy whatsoever. I mean, yeah, I'm saying I'm not have a backbone, but I, I I understand. You know that you people can rationalize compromise when faced with the alternative of well, I'm not going to be able to do any good whatsoever if I don't hold my office, and so I at some level have to sort of self preserve first. You know, it's fascinating to think about when you said you ticked off three of the biggest issues. And yes, education's always been a big issue. Healthcare's always been a big issue. The fact that we're talking about the internet and social media in the same breath as those two things is none of us would have imagined that 20 years ago when the internet was taking hold, you know? One thing that just really quickly on the education piece that I feel putting aside the loan forgiveness, which I know is super controversial, we're asking 18-year-old kids to make huge financial decisions at that point in their life. And then we want to yell at them 15 years later for the situation <laughs> they find themselves in. Yeah, maybe yeah. a lot of those kids have parents who are culpable in that decision. But a lot of the kids that need student loans may not have parents who are active in their lives. It's almost like that privacy thing. It's sort of, we're asking people to make a trade-off when they're not really informed about what the trade-offs are. All right, five quick things to take us home, Congressman. Lighten it up Just a little like bit. Just like five quick questions that I see. Five, you know it, you know it. <laughs> I know you're familiar with the format. Are you a better uh, driver or passenger when it comes to road trips? Oh, a driver, definitely. Uh, I hate being a passenger. Yeah, I'm the same way. Although I wondered because I'm sure you get shuttled around by staff quite a bit when you're in the district or whatever. But yes, 47% of people say driver. 24% of people prefer being a passenger and 24% say both. I can't handle it. Even on the longest road, family road trips we take, I have to be the driver. Yeah, uh, me too. I can't survive. I can't survive without it. How likely are you to assume peacekeeping roles between feuding friends or family members? Are you the one they call on to, to solve the feud? Well, that's interesting. I am somebody that believes in apologizing, even if I don't feel I'm the responsible party. It's funny. I talk with friends about that that you say, well, you know, I was only really 10% responsible for this fight I'm in. And the other guy should come apologize first. I don't mind telling someone I'm sorry. And so I have a tendency, you know, I've been married 47 years. I've said I'm sorry a lot, (laughs) but it's it's been good for the marriage. And the same with our kids. We have four kids, right? And I'm more the peacemaker. Yeah. 16% of people say they're highly likely to play that peacekeeping role. So it's a small group. What is your favorite classic barbecue side dish? We're both big foodies. What's your favorite? Corn on the cob when it's in season. Good answer. That's 8% of people. I'm a coleslaw person. That's 20%. Mm. Number one's baked beans. uh, I'm not a bean person. Yeah, me neither. 32% baked beans, 17% mac and cheese, 20% coleslaw, and 8% corn on the cob. You're right. Seasonality is super important there. When you're loading sharp knives into the dishwasher, do you put them in with the points down or the points up? Points up. points down. Yeah, definitely. I load the dishwasher a lot. 
definitely put them down because you know what? I'll just stick my hand in there and cut yourself. It's yeah, not good for the knives. 55% yeah. of people say points down. The right answer is you probably shouldn't put your best sharp knives in the dishwasher at all, but that's not an option. But yes, overwhelmingly people say points down, which is the smart thing because it's a great way to cut the hell out of your hand if you don't. Yeah. Last but not least, we could have a whole nother episode on this one because I know we're both big fans of music. What's the best decade overall for music? Oh, boy. I'm going to have to say the 70s. I mean, I'm a big Steely Dan fan. I like a lot of Motown. I like Earth, Wind & Fire. I like a lot of different music, but I still seem to be, you know, mostly in the 70s. Objectively, the 70s is the best decade of music. I, my my nostalgia is more for the 90s grunge era because that's kind of when I was in high school. But objectively, the heyday of music was for sure the 70s. I know you're a talented musician, tremendous piano player. I seem to recall maybe you were on stage with my band at one point. Uh, no videos of that were allowed to be taken. But yeah, I'm with you on the 70s for sure. If you just think of all the great acts and the legends and when the most creative music, I think, was being made. Well, Congressman... First of all, as an American and as a Western Pennsylvanian, I'm grateful for your service and everything you've done for us. It's very sad to see you, not to see you per se, but to see someone of your ilk departing Washington because you have that moderated, reasonable, ethical approach to governing that I'm, I'm afraid is, I hope it doesn't become a, um, a lost art as a friend, I'm glad to see that you maybe have a little bit more free time for golf in the coming year. So I'm happy for that. But thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Enjoy your last few weeks and by all means, enjoy much deserved retirement. Well, I appreciate that, John. I want you to know that the first thing I do on Saturday mornings is to, to pull your uh, email up and see what's going on. And I enjoy uh, your stories before the actual data information. And I'm amazed that you can get away with some of the things you do there, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there's lines I have to tell, but you know, we always say that information's more impactful, the more relatable it is. So I try to make it as relatable as I yeah. can. I'm glad you appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoy it. I enjoy writing it and hopefully that comes across too. So. Well, that's good. I look forward to uh, spending some time with you and a mutual friend sometime in the future. When, uh, I'll make it happen as soon as possible while the weather is still good. Thank you, Congressman. Keep All right, buddy. Take care. Take care.